Welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on July 20th, 2022 from South Carolina Public Radio Studios here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it, which is quite the disclaimer because this episode is a lead special report. We're focusing on the universe, part of which became a bit sharper recently thanks to the launch of the James Webb Telescope, which NASA says will be the premier observatory of the next decade, serving thousands of astronomers worldwide. It will study every phase of the history of our universe, ranging from the first luminous glows after the Big Bang to the formation of solar systems capable of supporting life on planets like Earth, and also the evolution of our own solar system. Yes, this episode is a bit of a break from our regular reporting, but there's no doubt that you saw those first breathtaking images from the telescope that were revealed on July 12th, just months after the telescope was launched Christmas Day, capping decades of planning for the Hubble Telescope's successor. With such a monumental development, we had to discuss it with our trusted expert on space and life, and that's Clemson professor Dr. Kelly Smith. But the telescope isn't the only instrument looking into the universe's secrets. The Large Hadron Collider was just restarted in Switzerland, leading to the rebirth of fears about parallel universes and black holes being created. Which leads me and Dr. Smith to a bigger discussion on facts, evidence-based science, and the truth as we know it, versus conspiracy theories and quick sound bites. Professor Smith is chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Clemson University, and also a professor of philosophy and biological sciences. He has his master's in zoology, specifically evolutionary genetics, and his doctorate in philosophy, both degrees from Duke University. Here's our discussion. Dr. Kelly, we spoke last year for a lead episode that was prompted by the release of a report by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAP, which I guess is the new UFO. Now, we can talk about that a bit later, but the main reason I wanted to catch up with you today is to talk about the first images from the James Webb Telescope. That's the $10 billion telescope that has stunned the world with these first images of the cosmos. Talk to us about the significance of these images and what your first thoughts were when you saw them. Well, I mean, my first thoughts were, aren't they amazing? I think anybody that looks at uh, images that came from the Hubble and images that come from the James Webb side by side will be greatly impressed at the additional resolution. And it wasn't that long ago that Hubble was wowing people with the amazing resolution that it offered. So James Webb is clearly a game changer here, and, and it's going to reveal all kinds of interesting things about the universe we live in. Mm-hmm. And just the significance when we're talking about visible light from the Hubble telescope to James Webb looking into infrared light and seeing, you know, the formation of stars and planets that we've never been able to see before. Exactly. I mean, any telescope like this is essentially looking back in time because it's looking at objects that are far, far away from Earth. And the the, the signals that came from that, whether it's infrared or, or visible light, originated many, many years ago. So having these kinds of devices not only tells us what's out there, but it tells us a lot about how the universe has evolved over time. And when you look at that one image of the deep field image, which is just a small galaxy cluster, uh, tell us about the importance of that image to you and what we see there. I, I use the deep field and the ultra deep field images all the time when I talk about this in my classes or to public audiences. It's a, it's a great visual way to make the point that our universe is unbelievably enormous. 
Uh, I, I urge everyone to Google the image and look at it. And your first thought is, well, this is an image with a whole bunch of stars in it. No big deal. Until you realize that, A, it's an image taken of a part of the sky that is incredibly uninteresting to the visual eye. There's basically nothing there. And B, uh, most of the things that you know a layperson takes to be a star are actually galaxies. And each of those galaxies contains something on the order of 100 billion stars. So it's a really quick way to make the point that the universe is unbelievably enormous. And uh, that's an important thing for people to factor in when they're thinking about our place in the universe and the future of humanity and the universe and all that good stuff. So is it safe to assume that there's life out there in some shape or form? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a matter of some debate, right? Um, personally, I would say the likelihood that there's not life out there is very low, uh, probably, you know, on the order of zero. Um, but you know, there, there is some debate about this. The, the bottom line is if you believe as most scientists do that life on earth originated through natural processes and you factor in that the earth is an amazingly huge place with many, many planets that are very similar to our own. It seems extremely unlikely that life would evolve here, but nowhere else in the entire universe. The, the real question, I think, to most people that are, that are you know, working on this is not so much whether there's life, but when we will find it, how far away it is, uh, and then you know, even further down the road, how we're going to interact with alien life that might be out there. So when we talk about some future discoveries, is it a matter of looking for those kind of planets that can, uh, would be hospitable to life? Well, that's certainly the, the strategy that astrobiology, which is you know, what NASA and others call the search for life beyond Earth, that's certainly the strategy that, that's been adopted in the past. One, one of the challenges you run into, though, pretty quickly is in order to identify planets that we think are likely to be inhabited, we have to make assumptions about where life is likely to occur. And the most obvious starting place is to assume that, you know, conditions more or less like on Earth are necessary. And so you look for planets that have, you know, relatively temperate conditions, uh, liquid water, that kind of thing. Um, you know, since we're talking about life as we don't know it, uh, it's, it's easy to, to say, well, you know, maybe life is completely different. Uh, from what we see on Earth, and maybe the conditions that can give rise, rise to this different life are completely different. And so you've had some interesting debates recently about, you know, whether or not there's any evidence, any, any reason to think that life might, might survive in the clouds of Jupiter or on Venus and things like that. And it, it's relatively speculative at this point, but it, it's, a good, it's a good question that scientists need to ask, you know, how, how confident are we that the kinds of biochemistry we're familiar with on Earth are going to be the kinds of biochemistry that other life forms would necessarily have? And the answer is just not clear. We don't really know until we find some other life and we can examine it in more detail. Yeah, our definition of life is not the same as it could be somewhere else. Or at least it might not be. I mean, we don't. one of the problems I work on is what the definition of life actually is. And, and even when we're talking about life on Earth, that gets really complicated really quickly. Uh, the bottom line is we don't really have an agreed-upon definition of life. Um, we have textbook definitions, but those basically take the common characteristics of life on Earth and say, that's life. Uh, and the minute you start looking for life beyond Earth, it's kind of hard to 
to make that justification stick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't need to wade into the the life debate right now with everything going on in the, with abortion, of course. But right. uh, to kind of pivot with that, you know, what? Tell me just before we move on a little bit, but just tell me a little about what what people think when you talk about these deep field images and they and they come to maybe some greater understanding about just where our place is in the universe right now. I mean, is it just really hard for people to grasp this? I know it's hard for me to grasp putting a piece of sand up to the sky and telling me that there's a there's a bunch of billions of stars up there and some planets too. I mean, just how do we wrap our heads around that? That I mean, that's a really interesting question. You know, people, we, we like to think of ourselves as very rational thinkers, but there's all kinds of evidence that, you know, most people, most of the time, and I'm including professional philosophers like myself in, in this category, most of us uh, sort of think intuitively a, a lot more than we realize. And, you know, the question about how big the universe is, is one of those concepts that's really critical to a lot of these debates. If you don't realize how big the universe is, you might grossly underestimate how likely it is that there's life out there. And so it's important to use something like the deep field image to try to get across to lay people just how big the universe is. It's There are other areas where this kind of thing comes up. Uh, I, I work in evolutionary biology a lot, and in evolutionary biology, one of the challenges you have is that people don't really have an intuitive grasp of how long life has been around, how many generations we're talking about, and therefore, you know, how much change an incremental process like evolution could produce if you give it enough time. Now, whether or not you're going to be able in five minutes uh, to convince people to change their intuitions is, is debatable, but at least it's a start. And it's the kind of, it's the kind of background information you really need to have before you can have an intelligent discussion about these kinds of issues. Yeah, a greater understanding, a better grasp on so many factors. Uh, it's not just so cut and dry. There's a lot that goes into it, of course. But we're talking about looking at trying to unlock the universe's secrets by looking to the cosmos. But we also have some unique capabilities here on Earth to do that. And one such instrument is the Large Hadron Collider over in Switzerland. It's the most powerful particle accelerator in the world. And it discovered that Higgs boson particle about 10 years ago and researchers just restarted the collider for the third time earlier this month after four years of upgrades. And particle physicists will be looking for more information on that particle and try and get a better understanding about dark matter. Uh, before we get in, first let's talk about these things, Professor, and then we can talk about if there's a parallel universe that opened up when this restarted, which uh, no one is believing, anyone's saying, I guess. But what do you think that, what, what do you look towards when we look at these subatomic particles and what they might tell us about the universe? Well, I mean, I should preface this by saying I am not a physicist by any stretch of the imagination. So the details of these debates are, are not something I'm really qualified to talk about. But, you know, in a very general sense, what you're trying to do with these large particle colliders is sort of examine the limits of physics. You know, you're trying to look at uh, what happens when you collide particles at just insanely high energies. And then you can split them into various particles and analyze those particles and so I think what a lot of people are hoping is that the, the more we put into this kind of research, the more likely it is that we'll uncover some fundamental keys to how matter works at this very low level. And, you know, hopefully, in, in some people's minds anyway, we even come up with information that might lead to a unified field theory in physics or maybe information that will sort of challenge the standard model of physics in some really interesting, fruitful way. But, of course like everything in science, you don't really know what you're going to find until you look for it. So 
Uh, they've jazzed up the particle collider and they're, and they're hoping they get some really interesting results. But as to exactly what they're going to find, I, I don't think that physicists have a consensus. I think it's more like, well, we've built it. Let's run it for a bit and see what happens. And then we'll figure out what to make of that. But you don't think that we got into a parallel universe on July 5th when it restarted? I, I, I mean, I don't know of any evidence that suggests that's likely to be the case. People, you know, people oftentimes raise these kinds of objections. Um, and oftentimes they're people that don't really know the physics very well. I know that um, when the Hadron Collider was first started originally, there were some people that worried that it would create a black hole that would then consume the Earth, and uh, that didn't happen. And the physicists assured everybody that was not really a very realistic expectation. I think this is probably the same kind of thing. But again, I don't know all the ins and outs of that debate. So I, you know, I know a bit about parallel universes, <laughs> but not as the, how they relate to the Hadron Collider being restarted. Mm-hmm. Do you want to delve into that really quickly, though? What, what about them and how people, you know, think they exist? Well, um, th- there are two kinds of arguments for the existence of parallel universes. One, one has to do with uh, certain kinds of theories in physics, like string theory, and and trying to make sense of some weird results in um, quantum mechanics, uh, like the double slit experiment and things like that. There's some deeply, deeply counterintuitive results. And one way to make sense of those in physics is to talk about the existence of parallel universes. And then in philosophy, uh, people have talked about parallel universes for a while as a way to make sense of possibility and necessity. Like, why does something happen in a certain kind of way when it could have happened in a different way? And all that gets really complicated really quickly. But again, I think on both sides of the divide, whether you're talking about philosophy or physics, uh, most people view this as still fairly speculative. It seems like it is a legitimate possibility, but it also seems like we haven't really nailed down whether or not that's the case. And, and if there are parallel universes, how many there are, you know, and, and what they're like. I mean, this is still fairly theoretical or if you prefer speculative at this point. Yeah. I mean, how do you even find that evidence or look for that evidence? Well, you never know. Like, you you know, science is, is good at over a long period of time finding evidence for things that people thought they would never find evidence for. So it's always possible that we discover really good evidence that there are parallel universes. Though it's also hard, certainly for a lay person or even for me, I, I know a bit about the sort of general details, but it's hard for me to imagine what kind of evidence might do that. But I wouldn't want to rule it out. Uh, I'll let the, I'll let the physicists do their experiments and see what they come up with. Would be pretty mind blowing, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, but what do you think, Professor? When it comes to you know some people really pushing conspiracy theories, especially when we're talking about evidence, we're talking trying to gather facts um, instead of just jumping to theories and and making these statements. I mean, do you think uh, what do you think has led to that in this day and age? Is it more or less what we've seen over the years, or do you think it's becoming more of a prevalent problem when it comes to the degradation of science in facts and expert opinions? Well, you know, that's a that's a big question, and it's something that I think I and a number of other people are, are really extremely concerned with. To me, it seems like uh, in the last 10 years or so in particular, but probably over a longer period of time, there's more and more of a sense that, to put it simply, we don't really need experts. Wh- whatever experts we're talking about, we don't really need the physicists to tell us about parallel universes. We can figure that out for ourselves, or we don't need the experts to tell us about evolution. We can figure that out for ourselves. Um, the problem, of course, is that 
Um, what's intuitively obvious and what's actually true don't always match up. Um, science has got a long history of proving things correct that seem counterintuitive. And I think personally that this is a really, really major challenge. And, and when I teach my classes, I present it to my students as the challenge of their generation is to try to figure out how in a you know, highly diverse society with the kinds of electronic communication that we have now and this trivially easy access to information, whether good or bad information, um, try to figure out how in that kind of system we can preserve a common understanding of the truth so that we, when we have a debate about some particular issue, we're not constantly being pulled back and trying to defend really basic claims which have already been established as being true um, because that's really very difficult. If, if every time you're in a biology class trying to teach your students about cell division, people raise fundamental questions about how biochemistry works, it's not that those questions can't be answered. It's just that that discussion is going to take a very long time <laughs> and it's sort of outside the scope of that particular class. And the same applies if you're having a discussion with a neighbor, you know, and they raise something about the Hadron Collider uh, if you know enough physics, you might be able to eventually convince them that you're right. But, you know, you're going to have to invest a lot of time talking about elementary physics and particles and things like that. And the person you're talking to maybe doesn't have the background. To re you know, so, so you're basically talking about educating someone about a lot of different items. And that's very time consuming. And most people find it boring. And so there's a, there's a certain sort of asymmetry that, that's a real problem. The, the people that have a simple, easy-to-understand answer, as Svent Yorgi put it, even if it's wrong, that, that tends to be transmitted from one person to another faster and accepted intuitively way, way more easily than the complicated, boring scientific explanation, even though the scientific explanation seems to be true and the theory that everyone thinks is intuitive is, you know, let's say highly problematic. <laughs> so there's a, there's a fundamental psychological problem here, you know, trying to convince people of things that experts know are true when the people you're talking to are not experts and they don't really anymore feel the need to defer to experts. They feel like they're perfectly capable of understanding this themselves and you should be able to explain it to them in five minutes. Yeah, we're talking about the power of the soundbite and the meme versus expert opinion and understanding. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a whole section on CERN's website about safety, about the collider too, so people can understand that. But I understand what you're saying. It's like, yeah, it's easier when someone says something, especially when it's being repeated by either, you know, politicians or certain media outlets and then, you know, disseminated even further thanks to social media. And it just kind of gets picked up and spun around and uh, it can really become, become something completely false in a matter of moments too. Well, that's right. And then the, the further worry, and I think a lot of people are saying this recently, is that once people are, are willing to take this kind of information at face value, and I, I put information in scare quotes, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> then the possibility exists for, for people that are unscrupulous to weaponize it and to you know, set out to convince people of something that is in their personal interest for, for one reason or another. Um, and you know, with, with the internet and the kinds of social media and micro-advertising that's now possible, you can you know, tailor a message to a particular audience and push it out to them trivially easily. 
And then in the time it takes the scientists to even realize this is going on, you've already convinced millions and millions of people that you're right. And now the scientists, instead of sort of initially explaining a question someone had, now they're trying to uh, root out misconceptions and diffuse them, which is a much more difficult task. Talk about a lie traveling around the world and back before the truth can lace up its boots like Mark Twain said, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly the problem. It's just gotten much, much more severe now that it's so easy for people to broadcast this. And and no longer do they broadcast it by putting an article in the newspaper that's read by whoever. Now they broadcast this argument to these guys who will like it and this other argument to these other people who will like that. And they can sort of create a consensus around an issue, even if everything they say is demonstrably false. The people they're talking to may not realize that. I mean, yeah, like you said, a generational problem right now is just the truth, right? Just getting bare facts and and data out there for people to understand. Um, But with that being said, it's kind of interesting because we saw that report last year about unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs as we used to know them as. And when we saw that there was, you know, came out from the the Defense Department, the uh, intelligence agencies, and found 143 of these UAPs between 2004 and 2021. I know we talked about that before, but we heard some testimony about that uh, earlier this spring. But it was just kind of fascinating because you have this kind of report where you could say you could fuel a lot of theories or a lot of uh, different thoughts on the matter, and it doesn't seem like it's made as big of a splash. Do you think it's because it's not really definitive enough for people because it is somewhat vague and we do have some video, but we still just can't explain it? Or what do you think about the reaction to this report? Well, you know, so there's, there's one of the problems with this kind of discussion is that there's this prior history of UFO interest, let's call it that. Um, And I think that when experts looked into this in the 50s and 60s, they decided that there really wasn't much evidence that there was anything interesting going on here. But of course, as maybe one of the first examples of what we were just talking about, that didn't really impact the people that were sort of true believers that UFOs have come to earth and abducted humans and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think what you've had recently is the authorities in particular, the Navy, but, but the Pentagon and others have realized that, you know, recently we've encountered some phenomena that are difficult to explain. And rather than call them UFOs, because that sort of links it to all this other stuff that happened before that's already been examined, they coined this new term, unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP, to try to to try to draw a line between, we're not talking about your grandfather's UFOs, we're talking about something new. And I guess people um, aren't reacting strongly to the, re- the Pentagon report and some of the things that have come out, because like you say, they're, they're tentative. I mean, what the Pentagon basically said is, here's some phenomenon we don't really know how to explain them that they, they might be alien craft or they might be some, you know, advanced uh, aerodynamic technology that the Chinese have developed or something like that. It's just, it's unclear what to make of them. And what we need to do is we need to lay out what we know and have a team of, you know, diverse experts really look at it very carefully and decide what's going on. And I think that's probably going to happen over the next few years. And then there'll be another report at some point, which, which summarizes what we've discovered and what we think the explanation for it is. But until that second report comes out, my guess is most people are just going to kind of ignore this because it doesn't really lead to, you know, catchy sound bites in a, in a headline, right? Uh, Pentagon promises to look into unexplained phenomenon. It's not that sexy. Uh, yeah. So we're beyond that now, right? <laughs> we got right. sexier things to talk about. Um, 
But Professor, with that being said, we've covered a lot of ground today. And I, I just want to ask you, you know, as a philosopher, uh, what your maybe a big thought to leave us with or something that you've been researching recently or something that's been on your mind just for people to think about as we think uh, work through a lot of different things these days. Uh, is this just an open invitation to talk about anything I've been researching that might be interesting? Or <laughs> Yeah, yeah, by all means. Well, I mean, you know, the kind of work that I've been doing for the last 15 years or so is thinking about uh, social and ethical dimensions of space exploration, the search for life, the attempt to establish human settlements on other planets, things like that. And I think, you know, if I had to give like one sort of big thought to, to your audience, I would say, in the next 20 or 30 years, humanity is likely to make major strides in uh, leaving the Earth. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a self-sustaining colony on Mars in 30 years, but we're, what you're going to see is we're going to start setting up the kind of infrastructure that will make you know, major endeavors in space practical. And once that's in place, people are going to start planning for things like major settlements on other worlds, asteroid mining, um, you know, things like that. And those bring up just a huge host of really complicated social and ethical questions that by and large, people just haven't thought about that much. And so what people like me are trying to do is get people interested in this so that we have a lot of people thinking about them. Because if you don't think about these things in advance, what happens is someone does something and then that just becomes the default um, even if it's even if it's not really very well thought through. And so for something like, um, well, just to take one example, we now know that there's a, a good amount of water on the moon, not an inexhaustible amount, but there's a good amount of water on the moon. And water is extremely useful because you can divide it up into oxygen and hydrogen, which is rocket fuel. So one thing that people are going to start thinking about fairly soon is, should we set up a gas station on the moon and mine the water, make it into rocket fuel, and then spaceships, once they leave the Earth's gravity, they'll have a place to refuel without having to go through all the effort and expense of landing on Earth again and taking off again. So you can get a ship that leaves the Earth's orbit and then can do you know 20 years of service in space by refueling on the moon. The problem, at least one problem, of course, is that there's only so much water on the moon and it's not renewable. <laughs> so are we comfortable, you know, mining out a precious resource on the moon because we need it now? And we'll worry later about what the impact might be. A lot of things to think about, especially as we talk about Mars exploration and we talk about going back to the moon. And of course, just greater insight in the universe now with these wonderful images from the James Webb Telescope. A lot to think about. And we appreciate your time, Dr. Smith, uh, for this insight, for this conversation as always really opening your eyes and, and letting us think a little bit deeper about our life here on Earth and, and out in the cosmos. Happy to help. Thanks, y'all, for listening. I hope you enjoyed a different kind of podcast episode today. We like to do these focused pods during the summer when big news happens or we have an inkling to drill down into a fascinating subject. Let us know what you thought about the interview, your thoughts on space, the images from the James Webb Telescope, and more by giving us a shout at 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and some thoughts on everything that we talked about today. 803-563-7169.
And again, thanks for listening to the pod. You can show us your appreciation by leaving us a voicemail, like I just said, or giving us a review on iTunes. We love that as well. And you can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. I just keep buying more rice. I keep buying more 20-pounders. I don't know why. I... St-